Okay, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. You can turn there. In our text this morning, we're talking about two topics that every pastor just loves to preach on. Money and God-killing people. And so it should be a lot of fun. We drew straws, and you could see where mine was about that big, and that's, that's why I'm here. Some of you may know that my grandmother a couple of months ago passed away. She was almost 98 years old. I went to Chattanooga and did her funeral. High cheekbones and jet black hair till the day that she died. She, of course, had the Cherokee blood coursing through her veins. And, and as a token of remembering her life, and you know, this is, this is oftentimes the case at funerals, the family members will go through and they will pick out different photos to put in a slideshow or on display. And so her her children and my aunts and uncles and mom, of course, did that. They went through all the photo albums and they selected different, different photos to highlight important aspects and milestones of her life. And so there she is as a little, a little girl, and then she's an 18-year-old riding a motorcycle, if you can imagine, or at least sitting on one. There's her, there's her children. There's her working in the factory during World War II. There's her grandchildren. And the interesting thing about this is that there was no way to choose every single photo to accurately represent her life. There had to be some sort of selection process. And so it wasn't um, an exhaustive history on photo display, but it certainly was a comprehensive one. And in a lot of ways, folks, I think that's exactly how we need to approach the book of Acts because Luke is writing now 30 years after the events about which we're going to read. And there is no possible way that he could have told and written down and narrated every single story that happened in the early church. And so he had to choose. And he chose the stories that he chose for a particular reason. And that's going to be really important for us to understand this morning why Luke chose these two narratives. Because we're going to learn about two sets of people this morning, Barnabas and then Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, of course, fathers, the kind of guy you absolutely want your daughter to date. Okay? Barnabas is that dude. Okay? So I see Jay Townley over there. He wants his daughter Maddie to date Barnabas. Not that Barnabas, but a different kind of Barnabas. Me with my girls. They're all over there. Then we have Ananias and Sapphira, who are, let's be honest, the Bonnie and Clyde of the New Testament. And they went to their untimely demise. And Luke, in these three sections we're going to look at, first of all, gives us a panoramic shot or or picture of this New Testament community. And then he's going to hone in specifically on Barnabas and then Ananias and Sapphira. And let me tell you what this is like. Um, Took Jack to the game last Saturday night and they advertise this, this technological wonder and miracle of panoramic technology where they take satellite images of the stadium, okay, of, 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 of a snapshot of a moment in time, and you can go on and you can zoom in on any single person in that stadium, okay, a close-up. It's, it's very horrifying. And, and, and so, guys, if you told your wives that you were at Bible study last Saturday night, but you really were at the game, she can nail you with this, with this little tool. And so, it's, it's, so what's interesting is that I can zoom in, and there's, there's 
there's the Curios, and then there's Matt and Ashley there right beside us. And you can't see Steve Curio because the Notre Dame fan's standing right in front of him, which is probably best. Anyway, there's Jack, and we're pointing. And, and it's like, wow, this is a pretty cool technology. In a lot of ways, that's exactly what happens here in Acts. Luke is going to give us a panoramic shot. Then he's going to zero right in on, on these two scenarios, these two sets of lives, Barnabas, Ananias, and Sapphira. And here's why he wants to do this. He wants to impress two themes for us as a church family to grab a hold of this morning. And the first is generosity, and the second is authenticity. And as we're going to see, generosity is important to look at for what it communicates about our spiritual lives and hearts. And I have to, have to make a confession this morning. I have not been uber eager to preach on this passage this morning. And I, and I don't mean about the God killing two people part of the passage, although that's, that's, that's going to be fun. Um, I'm talking about the generosity passage, and, and this is just where I am. We've spent a lot of time this past season as a church talking about giving and resources and finances and budgets. We had a family meeting a couple of weeks ago. There was a men's breakfast, ladies, where we, we hit, hit your husbands upside the head about this sort of thing. It's been a prominent theme in Acts. And so I've tried to make this passage about something that it's not, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So I have to ask, as your pastor, God, what, what, what are you doing here? What, again, do, do, do you want us to go there again? And my simple answer to that is God is saying absolutely yes. That's why we preach through books of the Bible, because we trust that in God's providence or sovereignty, he will bring us to the passages with the themes and the contents that we need for that time and for that day, and we trust him with that. Otherwise, it'd be very easy to skip over all those passages, right? It'd be very easy to skip over whatever the hot-button cultural issues of the day. We talked last week about the theology of silence. Let's just not talk about things that stir the pot or stir the waters. But when we preach through books, it doesn't give us that option. Before, I'll be honest, as I've studied this passage and preached at first service, I am really, really excited about what God is going to teach us here. Because it's going to be much more than merely about generosity going to be about what he really wants to do in our hearts this season as a church family. So God's spirit, our community, that's the name of this message. Three sections, we're going to read them one at a time and, and work our way through the passage in that way. So we're going to start in 4 verse 32. Here's the panoramic view. Here's the panoramic view. Now Luke says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and a great grace was upon them all. I know we have a lot of sports fans here. And have you noticed how sports fans take on the collective identity of their teams, right? They do that. Real fans do. So if you're, Seminole, if you're part of Seminole Nation, your anthem 
over the past year and a half is the theme song from the Lego movie, right? Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're a part of the team. It's a great time to be a Seminole fan. Now, on the other hand, if you're part of Gator Nation, okay, you're, you're bemoaning the fact that in those before and after infomercial bodybuilding pictures, your coach is the before image, right? Okay, so you're, you're, bemoaning, you're bemoaning that fact. Volunteer Nation, uh, no comment. We're just still in 1998. But do you realize we have a Mississippi State Nation contingent on hand, okay? Three, three Bulldog families. It's a great time to be a Bulldog fan. Enjoy it while it lasts. It comes around once every hundred years. But anyway, nonetheless... <laughs> One, but still, it's happening. Now, I maintain that there are true fans and there are pretend fans. And how do you distinguish one from the other? Well, one is true fans aren't bandwagon, right? If you're having a bad year, you don't sell your season tickets. You, you endure to the bitter end. If you're a real fan, you can actually name players on your own team, right? Okay, that, that must be a prerequisite for going to any football game, in my opinion. If you can't name a player then you cannot call yourself a fan, all right? So, but most importantly, you can always recognize a true fan because they use the collective we, right? We did this. We should have done that. When this happened, we were, what were we thinking? What was, you know, you can always tell a false fan that when, when, when things are going great, it's we. But what happens when things are not going great? It's them, it's, th- it's those people, they, I can't believe what they're doing. There's a collective we. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you find that kind of identity and joint ownership with a church family? Do, if you call Four Oaks your home and you are in, at all meaningfully attached to what happens here and receiving ministry and a part of this community does that define your identity with this church family? In other words, is this the place where you leave it all on the field? Or are you just a detached observer? Luke wants to, to do something here, I think, this morning. And God wants to do something here for Oaks this season. He wants to continue through his Holy Spirit to give us a collective identity as a church family. And let me just say right now, for, 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 I know it may not be Four Oaks for every person in here. That collective identity may not be here at Four Oaks. But let me say it is unequivocally, it is God's desire and will that every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ have a collective identity with some local church family. Do you have that? Does that characterize your life? Is church something you merely go to? Or is church something that you are a part of? And Luke, by giving us this panoramic snapshot, clearly says this church in the New Testament had a collective identity. They were on mission together. They were in community together. They were loving and serving together. Look at the text, and let me just kind of highlight some of the things that Luke highlights from a big picture standpoint that characterized this church, that, that characterized this collective we. Verse 32, it says, they were one heart and soul. 
In other words, they were unified. Does it mean they didn't have disagreements? It just means that, hey, we're rowing in the same direction here. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And we're going to talk about private property and communism and all that stuff in a minute. But let me just say what, what, what this is. The idea here is that they had a radical reorientation to their stuff. Is it about my stuff or is it your stuff that wants to be utilized by you to bless other people? It says they had everything in common, and that just doesn't mean possessions. It includes that, but the idea of koinonia, they shared life together. When you think about the collective identity, are there people in your church family that you share life together, that you walk alongside of, that you study the word, you pray, you minister, you serve. It says in verse 33, look there, great power giving their testimony to the resurrection. This was a word and a deed sort of church. They didn't bifurcate between the two. They were bold on the outside, but they were loving and building up and and serving one another on the inside. Verse 34, it says, There was not a needy person. They were selling and laying proceeds at the apostles' feet. What does that mean? It means they were generous. They gave their first fruits, their tithes, to the local church. They were living in submission to their leaders. And Luke is just painting all this picture just to, t- just to impress something upon us. He wants to say, Four Oaks, that's what God wants to do here. In fact, that's what God is doing here. And I call you to be a part of that. Four Oaks, do you have a collective ownership with a church family? All the things that Luke lists here, did they in any way begin to approximate or set a trajectory for your own life? If it's not here, we want it to be somewhere That's what it means to be a part of the family of God. So there's your vision. There's your picture. Now, Luke, just like that technology, eerie technology, zooms in on Jack and me at the stadium. Now he's going to zoom in on two sets of people. And the first we're going to look at is Barnabas. And here he's holding up Barnabas as a means of encouraging us towards being a community that's marked by generosity. All right, let's go back to the text. It says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We know that there's some of you out there who had a nickname in college, and you just don't want anybody to know what that nickname was, right? Okay, we we, we understand that dynamic. But do you realize that in the New Testament, they had nicknames for people too? See, see Barnabas was not the name. That was the nickname. Um, Joseph was his name. But they called him Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement. And, he, and Barnabas is a guy, uh, like Pastor Larry Osborne has said, is that on one level, he's, he's nowhere. But on the other hand, his fingerprints are everywhere. Barnabas 
was the guy you wanted to be your best friend. Everybody here needs and should have a Barnabas in their lives. Maybe you are a Barnabas. Remember, it was Barnabas who introduced Paul to the apostles. Paul terrified Paul, who had been trying to kill them one day. Barnabas took Paul under his wing and said, Paul, it's going to be okay, and I will take you before the apostles, and I don't care about my reputation. I want to see the the mission of the gospel go forward. It was Barnabas who was leading the mission and team from Antioch who recognized, you know what? I'm traveling here with Paul, who's incredibly gifted, and I'm not going to be the number one anymore. I want to be the number two. And I want to serve Paul, and I'm going to let him take the lead. Incredibly humble. It was Barnabas who stood up for John Mark and said, I know John Mark has screwed up, but I want to take him under my wing. And we know that God used that work to restore John Mark to faithful ministry. And here, Barnabas is introduced to us for the first time, and he is shown to be the bright star of generosity. See, the gospel had renewed Barnabas and it had peeled his fingers back from his stuff and had totally reoriented his, uh, th- this idea of who owns me, who owns my stuff. And he was selling and submitting it to the church to use to provide for the needs of the people. There's a lot of confusion about this passage. Okay? And so how are we to understand and apply it. I want to just say a couple of things about this because there's because the the communists and socialists of our day love to go to passages like this and extrapolate for them and make them say something they actually don't say. Context is important here because you realize that when there was 120 people in the early church and they were preaching and proclaiming the gospel on the day of Pentecost, that over the course of the next few weeks, literally thousands of people came to know Christ. Some of those people lived in Jerusalem, but many, many, many others were from other parts of the Roman Empire. They lived in Italy, or they lived in Greece, or Macedonia, or Asia Minor, or Syria, or Antioch, or other places. And a very interesting thing happened. When these people were radically saved and became part of the New Testament church, they didn't go home. (laughs) Okay, Thousands. And do you see what kind of problem that would be? It would be like FSU winning last Saturday night and saying, we are so jazzed about what is happening here, and we are so excited, and we are going to party down, and we are not leaving until the next home game, all right? Think about sort of the humanitarian crisis that would create. Where do we go to the bathroom? Okay, what do we eat? Where do we sleep? What are we going to do? There would be a massive, it would be a massive problem. And this is exactly what was happening in the New Testament church. And they didn't look to the government. They looked at the Roman Empire. They said, we're going to take it upon ourselves to provide for the needs of the church family. Now, we do know later on in Acts 7, God says, enough of this. Okay, time to go home. So he sent persecution. He wanted them to go home and take the gospel to those um, who were in their own hometown. But essentially, that's what's going on. Because this is not communism. Um, this, is, this is voluntary. This is not government-ordained. In fact, this is not even church-ordained. Okay? This was not done under compulsion. The key verse here, look at verse 34, is this idea that this stuff is not our own. Because, you see, they owned property. This is not a, this is not a diatribe against owning private property. Um, 
we know from chapter 5 that one of the things that the apostles told Ananias and Sapphira, this land belongs to you. You, you, you don't have to sell it. You don't have to give it. The problem was that they lied about it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But see, Luke is communicating all this to communicate one thing to us. The ethic of the New Testament church and community of people has to be one of what is mine is God's and what is mine is yours. And that just so such a radical concept for us because let's be honest, we live in a culture, do we not, that says not what is mine is yours, what does it say? What is yours is mine. And I should have some of that. And in fact, I think I'm entitled to that. That's why, just a side note, um, there is no economic policy that can cure, that by itself, that can cure the ills of our economic culture. There has to be a fundamental heart change. And, and Luke is zeroing in on the heart change that God did in Barnabas. And the question is, what compelled him? What compelled him? What compelled Barnabas to do this? And I would submit to you it's this. Barnabas was compelled by the mission of the church. We see this evidence throughout Barnabas's life when he goes off from Antioch and, they are, and, they, and he's resourcing and mobilizing. Barnabas and many people in the New Testament church recognize, hey, if we don't do this, the mission of the gospel stalls. If we don't do this, the gospel is not going to be rooted and built up in our lives. Um, we have to do this in order to further the work of God's grace in the community of God. Barnabas was sold out. Barnabas was a we. When he saw one part of the church hurting, it hurt him. And he wanted the apostles to be free to minister and to serve and to love and to pray and to preach and the church to be growing spiritually. And that was not going to be possible if they were in a perpetual state of economic crisis. Because I want to update you here in just a minute about where we are as a church financially. But before I do that, I want to make one thing clear. This passage is not about budgets. This passage is about changed lives. A budget is a tool. A budget is something that the pastors and elders simply put together to help us say, God, how can we maximize growth in the gospel here at Four Oaks? How can we serve our families? How can we serve our kids and our students? How can we be missional? How can we reach out? How can we plant churches? How can we support our gospel partners? A bud- we don't serve the budget. The budget serves us. The budget is a tool. And it's the same thing in this passage. And the tail was not wagging the dog. Barnabas always had the mission, and the early church had the mission of the church in mind as it was giving sacrifice sacrificially. And so kind of with that caveat, let me just kind of just briefly update you guys on where we are because a lot of you've been asking. We had a church meeting a couple of weeks ago, the audio is available online, and we said, you know, we have budgeted for our resources that we need about $35,000 a week to do what we believe God has called us to do. 
And first of all, that should just stagger you immediately. I mean, that we are dependent upon the Lord's grace in the hearts of his people every week for that to happen. And we communicated at that meeting that we are currently getting about $28,000 a week. So 35,000 minus 28,000, 7,000 times 52. You kind of get the picture, right? That's, that's a major shortfall. And, and we said, as your leaders, we are going to, we feel compelled to address that. We have to cut, we have to modify, eliminate, um, shrink budget, shrink salaries. That's part of what happens in a family. It's what happens in your family when you have a budget shortfall, right? At the same time, calling us as a church family to say, hey, if we're not vested here, how would God have you give as part of the we of Four Oaks? And so the last three Sundays since we had that call, remember, 28 is where we've been, 28,035 is what we need. We had a Sunday of 45,000, a Sunday of 44,000, and then a Sunday uh, uh, back to average of 28,000. So averaged about 39,000 over those three weeks. Where is the truth in that? Where are we going to land? I don't know. Um, it's probably not 28, it's probably not 45, but God's grace in the hearts of his people. But guys, that's not the cool thing. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for responding that way. Thank you for responding in generosity and taking on the collective we and bearing the burdens of Four Oaks. But let me tell you, there has been some really cool stuff, and we don't even have time to talk about all of it. Someone, I mean, there's just so many stories of generosity. Someone sold their four-wheeler and gave the proceeds to the church. Now, granted, they should probably not have owned the four-wheeler to begin with, but they sold it. Guys, someone donated a car, and I mean like a real car. I mean like one that runs, and it's worth more than $1,000. I tried to give my van away, and Burke wouldn't take it. He didn't. He said, no, 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 thank you. Real cars, please. Um, we've had above and beyond gifts. I mean, just stories after stories of generosity because that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in our church family in this season. And I want to make an appeal to you. If you're, if you're a covenant member here, when you joined the church, you made a, ten, a commitment, I'm going to give the first fruits and tithes, my 10% to the local body. But that's not about budget. We will live on whatever God says to live on. This is about ministry. This is about people's lives. And when we think about why people don't give, Tim Keller makes a great point about this passage. And he connects what the Spirit is doing at the end of of chapter 4 that we talked about last week. It emboldened the apostles. Remember that in the church? They were praying for boldness. And he talks about the, the, the work of the Spirit, not just infusing boldness, but infusing generosity. And he makes a great point here, and this is so good. He says, the root of a lack of giving is most oftentimes not greed. He said, it's not greed. Rather, it's fear. It's a lack of courage. It's saying, God, if I do this, will you still provide for me? God, if I give you the first fruits, will you be faithful to do what your word says that you will do? You will supply all my needs. If I seek first your kingdom... All these other things will be added to you. The early church was empowered and emboldened by the Holy Spirit to be ones who were not afraid of risk. In in our culture, risk just means I've got to have an X amount of dollars in my emergency fund, or I have to have surplus funds and disposable incomes for comforts and pleasures, or I'm afraid that my gift won't be used effectively. None of those values 
should ever trump the gospel realities. Folks, I, I call you to this as your pastor because I believe in the gospel. And I believe that God uses resources to impact people's lives for Jesus Christ. Fear and unbelief was not an issue for Barnabas. Barnabas, or else he believed. Whatever he gave up in selling that piece of dirt, I promise you, pales in comparison to the eternal impact that resulted from that gift and that Barnabas is enjoying right now. Folks, let's pray that God will empower us and help us to be Barnabases. Third section, Ananias and Sapphira. We'll talk about authenticity because I think that's what this section is really about. Verse 1 in chapter 5, it's Ananias and Sapphira, um, a man named, sorry, named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Not what you want to hear at the newcomer luncheon. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And so here we have Ananias and Sapphira, a tragic couple, joined the ranks of many other infamous duos in history. We know them all. John and Yoko and Antony and Cleopatra and Romeo and Juliet, Bill and Hillary, um, Beyonce and Jay-Z, or as my friend Pastor Dave Harvey has said, Beyonce and Jay-Z, all right? But this passage is important because it's the first that begins with an ominous note. Here you have Barnabas. God had peeled his Killed back his fingers from his stuff, had done a work of grace in his heart. In verse, in verse 1 in chapter 5, it says, what? But. And it's Luke's way. And this is the first time in the book of Acts that we see the entrance of sin into the ranks. And it's Luke's way of reminding us. This is so important for us, four oaks. This is important corporately, and it's important personally in your own life. He's reminding us that the biggest obstacle to the Holy Spirit working in your life or the biggest obstacle to the Holy Spirit working in our lives is not persecution. Um, It's not even being culturally squeezed or suffering or lacking resources or anything really external to our church or to ourselves. The biggest obstacle to the Holy Spirit's work in our life 
is us. It's something deep and personal and destructive. And the Bible just simply calls it sin. And here's how it manifested itself in this passage. Ananias and Sapphira had a field. They sold it. They kept part of it back for themselves. Say they sold the land for 10000 They told the apostles they had sold it for five, and so they gave the five and kept the other five, and they lied. And let's be clear, guys. This is not a um, health and wealth prosperity theology text. Um, it was not the sin of not giving enough money that was the problem here. Okay, that was not the problem. God did not strike them dead because they didn't give enough. Okay? Look at verse 4. It says, because Peter makes this clear, it was theirs before God, meaning while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? They were under no compulsion to sell this. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? They could have come to the apostles and said, listen, we sold it for 10000 we're going to keep 5000 because we've got to send so-and-so to college in Alexandria. I don't know, whatever they said. They could have done that. Peter's like, you could have done that. That wasn't the problem. So don't mis- misunderstand here, folks. It's not about God punishing for not giving enough, okay? or by the same token, God heaping out a whole bunch of material blessing because you've given like he's an ATM machine. That, that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about the heart. Do you see here the connection between generosity and authenticity? Luke tells us this story of generosity because he knows, just like Jesus knew, this is the key to your heart and it's the key to my heart. Luke's ultimate concern in this passage is found in verse 4. Look there. Ananias and Sapphira, you contrived this deed where? In your heart. See, it's not just merely generosity is important. That is to mission and ministry but it's what a lack of generosity might reveal about your heart and mine. Luke's concern is just that very thing. He's concerned with a heart that is full of hypocrisy because the heart that is full of hypocrisy is in a very precarious position. And let me explain a minute what I mean by hypocrisy. I don't mean by hypocrisy what our culture means by hypocrisy. See, culturally, hypocrisy is you say you believe something and then you don't do it or you fail to do it. You don't practice what you preach. That's hypocrisy. A little while back, there was a baseball player named Josh Hamilton who had, who had suffered from, a, from a, a long season of substance abuse, and he was very vocal about it and how he was broken and how Christ had really worked in this place. And then he was publicized a couple of years later that he, had, that he had fallen into that life again. And so what was the charge? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Of course, unmentioned in this was that Josh Hamilton was very vocal about his failure and stating, yes, this is what I believed, and yes, this is where I put my stake in the ground, and yes, I failed. That's, that's not the hypocrisy that Luke has in view here. Okay, because hypocrisy, and this is so important, folks, because you can be shamed and silenced into being a mute on cultural issues. 
because of the fear of being accused of being a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is not failing to practice what we preach. Everybody in the history of mankind has failed to practice what they preach, right? On some level. Hypocrisy is not failing to practice what we preach. Hypocrisy is pretending to practice what you preach. And that is a very precarious spiritual situation. I could stand up here today and say, men, I call you to prioritize your family. I call you to balance home and work life. And let me position myself as someone who's got that issue figured out. I am the paragon of virtue and example and and follow me because this is an area that I've done very well in while all the time behind the scenes, my own home life is crumbling. That would be hypocrisy. But let me tell you what hypocrisy is not. Men, I call you to this like I call myself to this. I know you struggle with this. I struggle in the same way. As broken, repentant men confessing our sin before the Lord, this is what I call us to. That's not hypocrisy. That's called biblical authenticity. And that's what Luke is going after full force of your parents. Let me just say this. This is why confession of personal sin is so important to, convult, to cultivating a spiritual heart of authenticity with your children. Otherwise, they will sniff your hypocrisy a mile away. They'll resent your failures and use them as a rationale from walking away from Christ. Don't do it. Tell the truth about yourself. That is Luke's point. You see, folks, we are all hypocrites, little h. There's a difference in being a hypocrite, little h, who recognizes their hypocrisy, confesses it, and turns to Jesus and seeks repentance. That's a Christian. A hypocrite, big h, is someone who's very settled and comfortable in their hypocrisy. That's why Jesus had very severe words for the Pharisees because they positioned themselves as doing something, but were in reality doing the very opposite. And that is a very precarious spiritual situation. This is why it says, look in verse 5 and verse 10, that God struck down Ananias and Sapphira. Because, now if, now if this shocks your cultural sensibilities, just stay with me. Because that's what every hypocrite, capital H, deserves. Because hypocrite, capital H, is another word for just saying someone is an unbeliever. Because a believer is someone who recognizes their hypocrisy, confesses their sin, and runs sprinting to the cross of Jesus Christ. It says, please, Lord, give me grace and mercy. That husband who has not spent enough time at home, that family who has not given generously, that whatever the, whatever the besetting issue or sin, we find mercy and grace. And Ananias and Sapphira refused it and simply posited themselves as something else. You know, some, one pastor has, has noted, the question is, why hasn't God, why did God strike down Ananias and Sapphira That's how we usually posit it. But rather, why hasn't God struck down everyone? Because that's what 
sinners entrenched in their sin deserve. That's what we deserve, folks, apart from the mercies and grace of Jesus Christ. And if that shocks your cultural sensibilities, let me just gently, gently, humbly suggest that you may be absorbing the cultural notions of who God should be for you versus the biblical notion of who God is for himself. As it says in verse 6, what does it say? Fear came upon the whole church. Do you think that's a good thing or bad thing? All throughout Scripture, we have picture after picture of this idea that God is holy and separate. We see it at the burning bush where God says, Moses, take off your shoes, get down on your face. You are standing on holy ground. We see it in Isaiah, where Isaiah 6 is before the throne of God, and he says, woe, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. We see it in John, I mean, in in the book of Revelation, in the first three chapters, where John comes face to face with the risen Christ and can't prostate himself any lower because he is in the awe and fear of God. I would submit to you, Four Oaks, that if you and I walk out of here today with a healthier sense of the fear and the awe of God, that is a good thing. Because fear, now listen to this, it's so important, fear for the Christian moves us toward Christ. That's what Paul means, flee from the coming wrath. Fear for the Christian moves us to the cross. It says, rock Of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. I am a man of unclean lips, and I am done. Lord, I am a hypocrite. I fly to your mercy and grace at the cross. Or we can be entrenched like Ananias and Sapphira. Because the greatest antidote to hypocrisy, please hear this, is not doing better. The greatest antidote Hypocrisy is confession and simply admitting what we know to be true about ourselves and moving towards grace bound only in Jesus Christ. That's, for Oaks, what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us this season. He wants to create in us an authentic community. Oh, yes, he wants every part of us. Oh, yes, he wants us to be generous. Oh, yes, he wants us to fund the mission. But make no mistake, He is really after your heart, and he's after mine. We're not the bold, authentic, generous church that we want to be or that we should be, but we do want to be there. 